0: and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Um, I am delighted to serve as an introduction to uh, Kent Dunnington and Bruce Alexander. Uh, They had not met each other prior to today, although they were well aware of each other's work. Uh, Just for the record, they are the authors of my two favorite books on addiction. And I won't say which one's number one and which one's number two. (laughs) (laughs) But with that, I thought we might start by just talking to Kent a little bit about uh, his book, Addiction and Virtue and the impact that Bruce's thought had on the writing of that book.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me, uh, Pierce. It's good to be with you again. And it is, it is an honor to be with Bruce because, um, I've known his work and admired it from afar for a while. And um, so you asked about the impact of Bruce's work on my own book, which is called Addiction and Virtue. And, um, you know, it's funny. Really, the main thing that I knew from Bruce's work when I wrote the book, the, bu- the, the book was actually written in uh, mostly in 2007 and 2008. And I knew all about the Rat Park stuff. Um, which um, I found really interesting and it was aligning, made sense of a lot of the um, intuitions that I had about how the addiction conversation had been maybe over-medicalized and had become too atomized, too much of a focus on the addicted individual as opposed to the addicted society. And so I think I referenced those um, experiments in my book, but um, it wasn't until I, so the book actually didn't get published, I think until 2011. And when I went back to revise it significantly, I tried to catch up on the latest stuff, but I actually never read Bruce's book, um, the globalization of addiction. I didn't read that until a few years ago. And I honestly Still don't know how it slipped through uh, the, the cracks of my research, but it was a kind of striking experience. I read it a couple of years ago and it was just uh, amazing. I would list that as my favorite book on addiction. <laughs> and I had all this stuff underlined and, uh, and, you know, at several places saying, you know, I said this, I said this. <laughs> to the point where, where I thought Bruce had read my book and was incorporating it. And then I looked at the publication date, which I think, is it 2008, Bruce? Uh, for, And so that was published before my book. And uh, so I, I think it's amazing to me, you know, I, I come at this not as a, an addiction scientist. I come at it as a philosopher and theologian who is trained in virtue ethics and, um, trained to think about the way that habits work and and the way that um, our environment shapes our habits. And so I brought those intuitions to try to make sense of the literature that I was reading in addiction studies, which is highly medicalized, and, you know, develop this thesis. And then to come along and read Bruce's work, which, to be honest, is, uh, it's just much, much more um, acquainted with all the nooks and crannies of the literature um and to see that he was thinking along similar lines was was really validating um in fact i remember going through the book and just thinking like okay is there anything that we disagree about <laughs> what could we have a conversation about there's not much but um yeah it was mainly the rat park stuff that got my engines turning and then later reading bruce's globalization of addiction i just thought i think the subtitle of his book is the like, poverty of spirit um and that's a lot of what I tried to write about is that there's this powerful spiritual or theological dimension to addiction that is suppressed, sometimes intentionally so, in the contemporary discourse on addiction. And I think Bruce is just, he's just really brilliant about all of that.
0: And Bruce, your acquaintance with Ken's work.
2: Well, I'm still reeling with with uh, that very kind statement about about uh, Ken's acquaintance with my work, and, and uh, thank you for making my day, uh, very much. Um, and and I I have to be honest, um, I've only uh, I've only seen the two Biola University lectures. I have not read addiction and virtue and and that's because uh, there just hasn't been time but it, but I, I have um, I have I have when I watched the first of those two lectures I, I immediately uh, started incorporating Kent and in, in all my bibliographies and I realized what he has realized which is that we think very similarly and I, and I, I rejoice in that because we're thinking very similarly, but he of course is thinking from a, a very um, you know, primary Christian viewpoint. And, and I am think I am not, I am thinking from a, uh, uh, a non-believer's viewpoint. And yet that confluence is it's, it just, well, it's something to rejoice about as far as I'm concerned. And, and Kent mentioned it, it was hard to find one thing that, that we disagreed upon um, but I found one thing, and, <laughs> Good. and, and I wanna, uh, that one thing I really wanna delve into if there's time for it today. And that is in, in, in Kent's first Biola lecture, he's, he says, um, addiction is, is, is basically uh, a new word. Um, and I wanna say, whoa, 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 wait, no addiction is an ancient word it's older in fact than christianity uh, it goes back to the to the early roman empire and 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 I, I understand what kent means of course which is that the the idea of addiction as a medical disease of of alcohol and drug abuse is a new is a new concept that that goes back only to the 19th century and that's a new concept which gives us all a problem because because we don't None of the three of us, I, I think, like that concept. But um, the amazing thing is, that, is the change in the word addiction and, and, and sort of my, my hobby horse today is the fact that addiction has changed its meaning so fundamentally uh, beginning around the, the beginning of, well, let's say five, 500 years ago as, as the modern era comes into focus. Addiction begins to change its meaning, and it, change it changes it dramatically. And I think that that story uh, is is a very important one. I hope we get a chance to to delve into that today.
1: One game, Ken. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, I, I mentioned Bruce knows that story a lot better than I do. Most of my acquaintance with it is through the work of a scholar named. Peter Firenze. Uh are you familiar with him, Bruce? Oh,
2: sure, sure. He's a Canadian.
1: Okay, yeah, <laughs> and uh, I just remember an article that he wrote where he talks about not so much the invention of the word addiction, which you're quite right, Bruce. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's in the Bible or it's in the King James translation of the Bible, and. Um, but Ferenczi talks about this, this, maybe we might say that the modern concept of addiction is distinctively modern.
0: Um,
1: and Ferenczi talks about patterns of drunkenness in um, the middle ages and how certain features that we identify with drunkenness now, um, things like solitary drinking, um, we're just not a part of uh, drunkenness in the early middle ages. And so he, he uses that to speculate that what we think of as a sort of natural kind, you know, a person who's addic- addicted and that brings with it things like solitary use and all this stuff, that there is no natural kind that um, our modern concept of addiction maps onto a very specific shift in um, communal nature, economics, all of this stuff. And if we treat it like a natural kind, we're, we're sure to obscure the very things that we should be assessing and diagnosing. Things like what has happened to, to our, the way we do community and what has happened to the way we do economics and what has happened to the way we think about religion and its role in a person's life and in a community's life. So um, I do think, whether you think of it as the change in uh, a word, the change in the meaning of the word, or the construction of a new concept, something really powerful shifted in, in modern times. And we're now sort of wrestling with that legacy.
0: Yeah. For the sake of clarity, when you use the term natural kind, hmm. you mean like a, a universal or like a hazard of being human?
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah, that's a, that's some philosophy speak. Uh, we, we draw a distinction between natural kinds and social kinds and natural kinds are uh, sort of the way the world, I mean, some people don't believe there are any natural kinds, but if you think that there is a way the world is independent of human activities of organization, um, there's a certain way the world is carved at the joints say, so that rocks really are distinct things, uh, different from trees. And we haven't just made that distinction for purposes of human convenience. That would be a natural kind, um, or maybe some of the differences we think of between the species or natural kinds. On the other hand, a category like race is a great example. Race is not a natural kind. It's a human construct that <clears throat> is uh, traceable to a history of you know, oppression. Not all social kinds are bad, though. Um, And, you know, much of the debate, current debate over sexuality and gender is about whether we're tracking natural kinds or whether we're dealing with so-called social kinds. So what I'm suggesting is that addiction or any concept that has a sort of um, medical that we associate with science, we're tempted to think of it as a natural kind, like science discovers the way that the world works, the way that human biology works, and it's just purely descriptive. And what, what I think Ferenczi's work uh, and Bruce's work helps us see is that addiction is a highly <laughs> pliable concept. And if we treat it as a natural kind, that's just this thing that shows up in every civilization, it's exactly the same wherever it shows up, then we fail to ask the questions about all of the social conditions that actually produce patterns that we then characterize as addictive patterns. Does that make sense, Piers? Oh yeah, you
0: just gave me a lot of ammo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Bruce, let's 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 unpack this a little bit—the the the change that occurred, and and what what it was, and the forces behind it.
2: Yes, <clears throat> and I I will attempt to be brief. If I'm not brief enough, don't. Don't hesitate to intervene <laughs> because I don't want to talk too much, but um, the word addiction is obviously not a natural kind. It's always been contested since it came into existence roughly three or 400 years before Jesus in in the, in the Roman uh, Republic, before the Roman Empire. And... Um, People argue about it and, and it is in fact um, uniquely arguable. It's, it's, there's a class of words which seem to contradict themselves and it has linguists have put it in that category. It's a, it's a word which seems to be both a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. And so jump up to, up to the time of Shakespeare. Now we have, a, I, I want to mention a, a book by Rebecca Lemon, Lemon Like the Fruit. Um, and it's an incredible book called Addiction and Devotion in Early Modern England, in which she says, "Look look at Shakespeare, look at Christopher Marlowe, look at these, look at the King James Bible, and you'll see addiction being used more often than not as something very positive and as something very Christian. So, so people are in the King James Bible, we say that the family Stephanus is addicted to the ministry of the saints and that's why they're a good family um, and, and, and so on. The, uh, if, we, if we look at Faust, we see that he's, he's the legendary character of Dr. Faustus. We see that he is, he is addicted to, to his studies of theology and that's a good thing later he gets addicted to the devil and that's a bad thing. So uh, addiction is primarily a good thing. And what I want to say for for today is take that idea seriously for a minute. Let's, Let's just say that she's right. Let's say that there is a great deal of wisdom in the English language or in any language. There's a great deal of accumulated wisdom. And let's say there is a a thing called addiction, which is more often a good thing than a bad thing, but can be very bad, can be deadly bad, but is more often good. And, and, and play with that idea and see where it gets us. Well, the first thing that, that gets us is, is, is we, we have to realize, oh, and by the way, uh, the definition of addiction in this context is simply definition 1A from the Oxford English Dictionary. Where addiction is defined as a kind of devotion or dedication which is immoderate. In other words, if you're addicted in this in this in, in this early modern English meaning of the word, it's not just that you're devoted like you're super devoted, um, or you're super dedicated, or you're super attached. These are all synonyms for for addiction. So so let's. Here's my here's my thing. Take that idea seriously for a second, even though it violates our normal way of, of speaking. Of course, it's it's foreign to our normal way of speaking. But take take it seriously for a minute. What do you see? You see number one that society is held together by addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think about Mother's Day. What's Mother's Day about? Mother's Day is about the fact that that moms are not just devoted, but you know the, the really good moms, the ones that we want to bring the candy and the flowers to. These moms are super devoted, and and they made they made our lives work for us, and 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 we care about that, um, and and we want to encourage other moms to be like that. That's why we celebrate Mother's Day. We don't just. Know that about our moms, we celebrate it publicly because it's part of our culture is the celebration of that kind of addiction. And think of the other addictions which make society work. Um, I mean, obviously, any kind of family addiction in this broad sense. Let's say family devotion. Um, let's think of the the kind of devotions to 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 work and and innovation and technology which give us the modern. The whole gamut of modern technology. These things were not invented by guys who worked eight hours a day and then and then went home and watched the game. These <laughs> these things were invented by guys who, who who worked all their hours and went home and did their very best to try to be family people as well, um, and and put all their energy into into creating what. Um, these, this, this device we're talking on right now, this incredible device, not to mention the incredible microwave oven, which warmed up my, my coffee before we began. Um, addiction makes society work. If, if you happen to have read studies of the American army or, or really any, any army in modern times, you'll see that, that armies do everything they can to make them in, in, in units Addicted to each other, because those men have to go out and save each other's lives at the risk of their own lives every day in combat. Um, addiction is the difference between a, a a winning army and a losing army. So, so that's what. And this is not just me mouthing off. This is this is the language. This is our language. Our English language has. Has this concept of addiction in it, but think, okay, take it one more step. Addiction is is absolutely essential, not only socially, but um, psychologically. A person doesn't isn't doesn't have a real devotion in their life, a real dedication. What do we say about that person? Well, we've, we're sorry for them, right? Mm. They don't have a life um, they're 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 empty um they're pathetic and 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 if a person doesn't have that kind of a, a beneficial addiction in their life what do they do well we know what they do they find a substitute addiction and it, it might turn out to be alcoholism or it might turn out to be uh pornography on the internet or it might turn out to be one of these ugly things but we find we as in a, to the degree that we work with addicted people all the time we can see it's it's the idea of a perilous gift Kent your idea of a perilous gift addiction it always gives a gift mm-hmm. and and it gives the gift at your own peril and and indeed in the long run at your own loss but but of course we, ha- we understand it. Why do people do it? It's not because they, they wanna ruin their, their lives. It's because they want the gift. They, they must have the gift. So, so addiction is an, is an essential. And then, so here's my final thought. I, I will not go on forever. Um, <laughs> this meaning of addiction essentially disappears. Now, I bear in mind that the old meaning of addiction is not only positive, it very much recognizes the fact that, it, that positive addictions shift into negative addictions and kill people. That, that wasn't in, neglected in the old definition. But at some point, the positive part of the, of the definition drops out. Why does it drop out? Why does addiction go from being something which is Entirely not entirely, but but predominantly positive. To something which is entirely negative, why does that happen? And and Rebecca Lemon doesn't answer that question in in her book, so I will answer the question <laughs> in in the wisdom of old age, since I have not done any formal research on this, but. The positive meaning of addiction drops out because at some point in the 19th century, we start to get terrified by addiction. We look around us and we see all these drunks and we begin to see all these people who are, who are freaking out on morphine. And we even begin to see, dare I mention it, we even begin to see mothers who are not only addicted to opium, but addicted to mothering so that now we have a book called Mama-holics um, and, we, and you know, overprotective mothers. And, and we begin to see addiction. We begin to see the threat of addiction. Why do we begin to see it just now, just in the 19th century, in the 20th and the 21st? Because modern society is going to hell in a handbasket and we are generating more and more and more dangerous addictions in people who can't have um, positive addiction, let's say the you know the the kind of addictions we would want to have, like devotions, um, and we're seeing more and more addictions. So, of the of the of the horrible kind, of the the lethal kind. And what do we do? We put addiction in a box and we'll say, oh, no, addiction isn't this complicated thing, which is positive mostly, but but can go wrong. Addiction is just this totally negative thing caused by alcohol or caused by drugs. And, and the people who are doing that are not just people like you and I, even though we feel these addictive urges ourselves. Oh, no, no, we don't really feel those addictive urges. Those addictive urges belong to people who are, who are gonna be addicted to alcohol or drugs. And we gotta get those, those guys either into jail or into medical treatment or at least into harm reduction, um, because that's where our focus has to be. Uh, That's my story for the day. Uh, um, Thank you for (laughs) listening to this long story. (laughs) But everybody should read Rebecca Lemon's book, uh, I think, Addiction and Devotion in in Early Modern England, because I think she's opening up a new chapter here.
0: Well, you know, listening to you, it takes me back to addiction and virtue, especially when you know Kent devotes quite a bit of time. When it, and correct me, I might get the terminology a little wrong, but when you talk about um, addiction, affords us, I think it's something like a freedom from an arbitrary sense of identity. And Kent speaks really beautifully to that a human being really wants. I mean, you use the word ecstasy. I want to give myself over to something larger for the sake of something bigger in, in the interest of excellence. Um, and th- would that be, Kent, to, to your way of thinking what, what Bruce means by the positive idea of addiction?
1: Absolutely, there's so much in what Bruce said that um, that I wanna comment on But Let me just make a couple of comments. So yes, Pierce, one of the main points that I want to make in the book is that we have come to conceptualize addictive urges as though they're a distinctive category of human desire and one that is necessarily destructive when in fact they're just part of what Aquinas calls infinite human desire. Aquinas says we have infinite desire um, and therefore in Aquinas's theological outlook it's something that can only ultimately be satisfied by God. So for Aquinas, uh, Aquinas thinks that the promise of caritas, the love of God, is that here is something that we can be absolutely devoted to in a way that is thoroughly immoderate and it will not wreck us. It's the one object of our desire that we can pursue with absolute immoderation. And not only will it not wreck us, but Aquinas thinks that, rightly pursued, it will allow us to appropriately gauge our other loves. So our familial loves, our loves for country, our loves for work and the goods of the economy, so on and so forth. Now, of course, this isn't going to be compelling to you if you don't have a basically theistic outlook. But... um, it it makes much the same point that Bruce is trying to make, which is that if we think we're gonna deal with addiction by cordoning off addictive urges, saying that they're all bad and the way to resolve addiction is to become um, people with uh, small desires or people who live a fundamentally detached way of life. um, If Bruce is right about fundamental human psychology, that might be a fool's errand. And this is the last comment I'll make on this, I do think it's really interesting how um, prominent Buddhism has become in the contemporary conversations about addiction and recovery. And if you think that the problem is that human beings have too much desire and that the only way to deal with um, excessive or immoderate desires is to become someone who um, lives a fundamentally detached life where there's nothing that you are absolutely devoted to, um, then Buddhism makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, the way to deal with the addiction is to become a, a more and more detached person. But if you don't, if you think, as Bruce is just suggesting, that there's something essential to human well-being, to strong desire and to pursuing, to being devoted to certain things then you're going to think that in some ways you're working at cross purposes with human nature. And so what I argue for in, you know, in my book is that at least from a Christian perspective, the right response to what we now think of as addictions is not to become more and more detached, but to have the right attachments or to put it in Bruce's terminology is to have the right addictions, you know?
2: Yeah. I have a question for you, Kent. Um, was Aquinas right in the sense that you can't go too far within a, uh, let's say, in your devotion to to God? That and and what comes to my mind, of course, is, you know, the famous kinds of, of, uh, bad Christians like the Inquisitors, and and so forth. I mean, uh, is is it is he right in some way that you can't go too far in that particular? Uh, form of devotion.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope he is. I mean, it would be bad. uh, It would be a bad outcome for a Christian, for Christian theology if it turned out that our devotion to God was supposed to be somehow moderated. Um, (laughs) So I hope he is right. But the question is, um, how can we tell Uh, when what we think is our absolute devotion to God, this is the question from a Christian perspective. It's almost almost a given of Christian theological thought that we could never be too devoted to God. So then the question is how to make sense of the kinds of things that you just described, Bruce. And so um, certainly we can be overly devoted to a certain theological outlook that that's what leads to things like the inquisition. Um, Certainly we can be overly devoted to a story. We tell ourselves about who God is and who other people need to believe God is and so on and so forth. So I think that route is only promising if we believe that Christian Christian practices, uh, devotional practices, have within them the resources to guard us against the kinds of self-deception that lead to um, doing great violence and destruction to others in the name of religion, so on and so forth. So it's not a simple matter at all. uh, And I, I take your warnings very seriously. But ultimately, I do think Christians have to say, no, we cannot be immoderately devoted to the true God. Of course, that's that's part of why I've written so much on humility. You know, <laughs> it, it takes an extraordinary amount of humility not to convert our devotion to God into yet another project of self-aggrandizement um, and that sort of thing.
2: Oh, I am looking forward to reading that book. Thank you, the humility <laughs> book.
0: Mm. Well, it feels like there's this this place where um, these various themes come together, and you know, so when we're talking about addiction in the negative sense, we are ultimately talking about something that, um, at least as it progresses, uh, confining it to substances, um, that it rends the social fabric. That. Yeah. So that, that is one of the ways that we know that we're moving from something that is positive or neutral into the, this negative territory. Um, and I feel like one of the things, one of the great gifts of your work, Bruce, for those of us who are theists or uh, Christian other, otherwise, is that you really shine a light on an understanding of spirituality that really emphasizes the relational. And I would suggest that that may be one way of understanding when this sort of overzealous quality can enter into when when I am my addictive and beyond substances at this point could be to my church um, starts coming at the expense of my relationships starts denigrating others or excluding or shunning others
2: is that fair? Oh, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I isn't it the case that that the, the, the person that we all want to be is a person of who is devoted and and intensely devoted to to God or to our family or but really, Devoted to more than one thing. Um, isn't that's my ideal anyway? Maybe that isn't the, the universal ideal, but my ideal is that we, uh, any devotion can be can be excessive. And that and that and that therefore we are we it's our gift as human beings, that we are capable of, multiple devotions, um, not not large numbers, but more than one. And and that um, somehow that that's what makes us fully fully human. And and of course, in the, in that condition, we don't we don't do anything to the degree that it it wrecks our families or it or it wrecks our health or uh, whatever. I'm, I'm not sure I've answered your question. But
0: I just wanted to know if I was on the right track. Um... Because one of the ways that, uh, Kent, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you start breaking down habit in the philosophical sense in your work, I think that's very translatable into Bruce's theory, meaning that um, we're getting these moral goods out of these habits that really should be, or or in a a healthy sense, would be satisfied through our relationships Uh
1: uh-huh um well I don't think it's an either or I mean there certainly are all kinds of moral goods that are satisfied through relationships probably most Um, um but my my idea is not that um I mean, there there are there are habits that direct us to goods that go beyond the goods of relationship, right? I mean, there are goods of of learning and goods of of just sheer aesthetic enjoyment and that sort of thing. But um, but I do think there's something right in your basic point, Piers, which is that you know if, if we take Bruce's line and say we are to be a people, human beings are naturally creatures that seek devote to be devoted to things that are bigger than themselves. And, um, and a fully developed or a flourishing human being is gonna be someone with multiple devotions, devotions to family and to community and to country or whatever. Um, the, the, the question then is how do we know when those devotions have uh, <laughs> are, are too intense? Um, because Bruce draws attention to devotions to religion that have done great damage. But of course it's easy for us to think about examples of devotion to family or devotion to country that have done enormous damage. You know, we, we need only read the autobiographies of people who were in the Third Reich to see how easily one in devotion to one's country and to what one thinks one should naturally be devoted to can do enormous damage. So, you know, the 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 question is if we have this notion of good kinds of addiction that we should be pursuing, how do we, are there any standards by which we can check whether our devotions, uh, are leading to flourishing? Um, And I'm wondering peers, if you're suggesting that the quality of our relationships or something like that is, is our main benchmark.
0: Well, I mean, my reading of your work, you know, the intractability of certain habits, meaning heroin or alcoholism, is because where where we're not making connection, we now make connection with the substance. And so, like one of the examples you use is freedom from loneliness. No one would say that's not a moral good, but when that is put that freedom from loneliness is, you know, me in a vodka bottle. Mm-hmm. That's now we're not in a healthy territory at all, as opposed to freedom from loneliness to have this kind of conversation. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what I'm dealing with in my work, and it's, it's worth stating, is that I'm seeing a wave of young people now who really don't have um, any prior history with... social social skills, social intelligence, eye contact, conversation, manners. And I used to think that they were somehow because of digital devices and drugs and such that they were disinterested in other people. And of late I'm beginning to wonder if they've lost interest in themselves and that there's even a way of relating to oneself that is disappearing. Um, it's, it's it's very it's um, and 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 you can say to a room full of addicts you can say think back to when drugs were really working for you that's the kind of language we talk you know when when the bar was this welcoming cheers kind of place or when you were running with your crew and you had all this sort of thing going on and was that not the most I don't use this term but what Bruce would call integrated. Time of your life, most pleasurable, integrate, and they will all raise their hands. And so, part of the challenge of recovery becomes, you know, we're trying to offer you something that, uh, in lieu of that, you know, they don't. It's it's almost impossible to believe that that could happen. Mm. Mm. So it's. um...
2: Can can I please extend that a, a little in in another direction about another generation? I, I live on an island and, and it's about 2,500 people on this island. About half of them are retired people. Many are in their eighties like me and many in their seventies and sixties. And there, of course there's a lot of social life and we're very happy with our island and, and so forth. But one one of the things which I notice is a, is a drinking culture and none of the people that i know could would be defined as having a drinking problem but they all and this includes me drink recreationally quite a bit you know get together and have not just one martini but two martinis and and we we make jokes about how uh, you know how we're going to get home and and it, and it's 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 really a drinking culture and yet I, and I want to. I want to say, if I'm taking Rebecca L- Lemon's definition, I want to say it's an addiction. Yeah, it's a. It's a. But I want to say it's a mild addiction. And and I'm. i going to say, well, you know, nobody seems to be suffering from it. We can afford the two martinis, and, and sometimes it's three, and, um, we can afford it, and it's not getting worse. You know, people aren't becoming, you know, dropping out and becoming alcoholic and you know going off into the into into hell uh, that's not happening but but i want to say maybe addic- again to go back to rebecca lemon maybe addiction in its milder forms is not necessarily positive but it's at least non-negative and it's functional and and so now we have people who who make their lives work in a reasonable way by drinking uh, in a slightly unreasonable way, does does that fit? Is that part of the picture? Well, I
0: mean, my question immediately back to that would be what is the addiction to? i I don't really think if we're using this earlier notion of addiction, are are you not just merely addicted to conviviality?
2: Sure, but you're talking about the guys who who had the best times of their life in the bar. yeah, uh, and what were they addicted to? Would would it not be conviviality that which you know alcohol fueled fueled conviviality of to be sure?
0: Well, I mean, in your work, you do say this. You point out that for many people who become full blown addicts, like myself, there is a period of time where the substance abuse actually affords relief, yeah, from dislocation, yeah. So and now the question is, why does that? this that pure group that i belong to go the full and pay the postage to you know i I have no real answer for you
2: and i don't know i mean i think we're in unmarked territory here but i but i think you know there's there's some virtue in the idea that addiction of course is a perilous gift and and Part of the way we avoid the peril is by by moderating it so that so that it would make sense in that way to talk about um, to talk about all addictions being somehow potentially dangerous and 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 yet all being potentially valuable and and and, and if we do that, of course, we're we're leaving. The 19th century definition of of addiction far far behind us. We're we're in we're in uncharted territory. And,
0: well, and, and 20th century too, really.
2: Yeah, yeah, and 21st, and and we're saying that look, we're in a new world here. We're in an absolutely unprecedented modern world. No one has ever been here before, um, and and we're learning to live in this new world, and we don't know how to do it very well that's why we have so many casualties and that's why you know california catches fire in the summer and all these you know we have all these dangers and and problems but we're learning to live in this world and and that may be a, a proper understanding of devotion and faith and addiction um is 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 Somehow, something we're 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 working on. We're trying to we're trying to achieve it, and we haven't achieved it yet. And even like I love I love uh, resistance recovery. Well, I mean, this is this is a wonderful idea, and, and people get together for conversation, and 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 you, you talk peers about how how important this conversation is as a as a part of community, but of course. Um, We don't really know how to do it yet. Mm. uh, Am I right that, I mean, we- we...
0: Well, we certainly did. Um, Kent had something a while back.
1: Yeah, I don't know how helpful this would be, but it it strikes me that um, one of the things that we're pushing up against here is the, um, is the, insight that addiction in the bad sense addiction in the sense in which a person would lament being in the state would feel that their life is being destroyed by being in the state that they're in it always is a it's not a mere dependence because uh bruce has just described all kinds of ways in which we can have a i have a dependence to coffee that my my day will be real rough without it right so we know that we have uh, all of these dependencies, and they don't cause us any problems at all. We, th- uh, we tend to think that um, we tend to use the label of addiction in the pejorative sense to describe a dependence that um, draws us into patterns of life that put us in conflict with other expectations that we have of ourselves, and that therefore lead us into a form of denial or self-deception. So I think what happens is that if I have a certain dependence that leads me, for example, to miss appointments with my family that I believe for my own reasons are important, I'm now in a position uh, where my life doesn't make sense to myself. I have to tell myself lies about what's going on in order to sustain a narrative of myself as a decent person. And this is why, you know, so many addicts say that denial is not just a river in Egypt and all this stuff, you know, and, but, but, and here's the point that I want to make that I think connects with what Bruce is saying, our sense of what a good human life looks like is itself not a natural kind. It's something that's given to us by the community that we're in. Mm -hmm. So to use as an example, these young people that you're talking about peers, I seriously wonder how our concept of addiction is going to shift as people become more and more accustomed to the idea that you could potentially lead a flourishing human life on strictly work from home um, and social media means of (laughs) connecting with other people. Think about what that does. It, It basically makes all of your human connections more or less on your own schedule and it it produces a situation in which a person, say a modern young person who recognized that their drug of choice was keeping them in isolation from other people would no longer have the contrast class that people in our generation have, where they can say, there's something about my life as it used to be when I would have said it was flourishing, where I was making my appointments, I was out in the world, I was meeting with friends in different places. And there's a contrast between that life and what this drug has has made me do, where I live in isolation, I can't keep my appointments, so on and so forth. But as that sense of what is normal shifts, so I think will our sense of what is unhealthily addictive. And so I, I do think that what strikes us as a form of dependence that is wrecking our lives depends upon those background assumptions about what a good human life is Um, in a say a medieval society where there was no problem with the men and the family staying in the bar all all weekend after the end of a hard (laughs) work week uh, it simply didn't occur to anyone that this was a pathological behavior, right? But now we live in a society in which that's seen as not part of normal human flourishing, and so that pattern of behavior gets characterized as addiction. Does that make sense? Makes total sense.
0: Yep. So, it, and it really raises a profound question: of is is what what constitutes a life of human flourishing? Is that totally up for grabs now? I mean, are we so particular or atomized or retribalized, whatever you want to call it, that we, we have no consensus around
2: it? I think it's not up for grabs, but I think it's up for discovery because we have never been here before. We've never been in a society with so many layers which go from the nuclear family to the globe. And we have to we have to consolidate all those those layers, and we have to discover it if it's discoverable. Um, I mean, it's conceivable that we've gone too far that that there's a limit to what our species and what our human intelligence can cope with, <laughs> and we and it's not discoverable. But I think I think our business is is not grabbing but but discovering.
0: Well, that's so interesting because it strikes me that. For most of human history, this was more or less the given. Yeah. It was not a question of discovering. It was, I mean, maybe you you fumbled oh. along and came to better accommodations for harvesting or something, but
2: we inherited it. We were born into it, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah. But no more. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we're in a time when we have... Um, you know, unprecedented technological reach, and yet, you know, I'm thinking about this uh, recent documentary on Netflix. I think it was called The Social Network, where you have all these founders of the te- the big tech companies, founders of Facebook, founders of Google, and they themselves are saying, "Look, we didn't know what we were making, but now that we've made it and we're seeing what it's doing to people, we won't." You know, they'll they'll say, "I won't let my kids use social media." So the very people who gave us the capacities, and they meant them for good, are now looking at the hard data of what is happening to their children, and just saying uh, these these um, tools take us beyond what is what appears to be healthy for human functioning. Or I just think about the way that the coverage of global catastrophes has essentially, you know anesthetized us to pain and it's made it very hard for us to feel compassion on the local level because we're inundated with catastrophe on a global scale. I think in all these ways we're trying to renegotiate what a life of human flourishing looks like Um, and you know as a generally conservative person I'm I'm not going to be surprised if we find out that it turns out to be much what we thought like living locally meeting (laughs) people face to face having meals together um, but I think we need to be really modest about it and say, look, maybe we have things to learn about what human flourishing looks like. And the the, the conversation about what addiction is and what human flourishing looks like are always two sides of the same coin.
2: Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: is why I wanted to do this. <laughs>
2: i have one more question for you piers cuz like recovery resistance recovery has a has a kind of a an edge to it right i mean it, there's a there's a, a a negative as well as a positive in that there's a and and you you also use the term recovery activist mm-hmm. which is which is kind of a politicized term and 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 i always wonder as i as i i think about this um, you didn't choose those terms accidentally. I mean, I'm sure those those terms have a what what is being resisted here?
0: Well, I mean, the more extreme narrative would be that um, not only does addiction rend the social fabric, but it's also very profitable to certain parties. okay and so the treatment of addiction or mass incarceration um arguably the medicalization of addiction you know really that's yep. just a boon for a big pharma especially in the states <laughs> God. so no. the resistance is that there's a certain body of knowledge that can at least spare people some pain and their families yes and it's you know it's kind of like Who's the guy who ran for president forever? Uh, The consumer advocate. Uh, Nader. Yeah, it's kind of a Nader thing there. Um, But there's also a more sinister side to it where, you know, I had no immunity in 1974 when I started getting high against sex, drugs, and rock and roll you know, the Rolling Stones and my friend's big brothers and the girls and all that. It it just, I had no immunity to it. And I don't believe that an 11 year old boy who's (laughs) smoking pot every chance he can, um, can be held, you know, to the standards of adulthood and choice. So there is a certain, it sells and it's marketed to the people who lack the with the wherewithal to be critical about it. So that's, those are aspects of the resistance.
2: Yeah. yeah, but but to some extent, it's a resistance to market forces. Um,
0: it is. And it's, and it's also born of the belief that the change will have to come from the community itself and not from politicians or the, me- the medical establishment. Yeah. Um, so it, it does believe that things like conversation and reading books are deeply radical. Um, yeah, yeah. So and so some of the content, if you look on there, look at let's look at some of the things that are actually uh, edgy. Christianity is actually edgy in that way. Kind of <laughs>
2: right.
0: um, uh, taking on big pharma is edgy, but not as edgy as it once was. Uh, The military, uh, the prison industrial complex, not really that edgy. Uh, Race is still quite edgy that, you know, that people with black and brown skin are disproportionately either they can't access treatment or they're incarcerated, at least in the States. Um, And some things that people don't like to talk about much, if you would look at my interviews with people like Doug Valentine, uh, the actual geopolitical machinations of the world of drugs. The, the, what that money funds, where that money gets laundered, the relationship to it to, you know, despotic regimes or flooding South Central LA with cocaine during Iran Contra, all those things. And you see that the real, the real issue is that the one place where we congregate as addicts faithfully AA meetings, NA meetings, CA meetings, we are forbidden to have these conversations because there's this thing called the 10th tradition that says you can't engage. So, you know, I feel like, you know, first I would try to reform those institutions, fool's errands. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend anyone trying that because I did. So now you have to create, you really have to create a venue where you can have these conversations. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so- you know, with your work, Bruce, psychology departments are not a venue to have the conversation about your work. I mean, that's how crazy
2: this <laughs> No, oh. no, uh, I'm definitely a rogue psychologist. <laughs> um, there was one other, oh, I, I, I wanted to ask you guys if, if there's a minute more for it, I, I wanna ask you to help me with something. I, I wanna know, I'm, I'm asked to give a speech in Bolivia in a month, not Bolivia. Uh-huh. Brazil, by 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 Zoom, and uh, and and I want to say that if, when we look at recovery techniques, that the kinds of recovery techniques which work the best in, historically and in, are things like AA has worked very well, things like the church, um, and things like resistance recovery which is like recovery communities where people get together and and not necessarily within the the framework of aA or the Christian church but but people people strive for I want to say those are the most effective just in terms of the number of people who who are actually helped to deal in a positive way with their harmful addictions am I right <laughs> I
1: give it to Kent uh, that's a great question i think you're right uh bruce but it is so hard to make the empirical argument because among other things like if you look at uh i mean you you know all this stuff but if you look at catchment surveys right the the number of people that recover in from addiction is a lot higher than you would think if you were t- tracing the media narrative and um yeah the yeah. a lot of these stats come from the book uh i think it's gene hayworth his book on addiction yes. um That's which right. is a addiction great book
2: at- or not what something like that
1: yeah a, a failure of choice or what i can't remember yeah. what it's called but yeah. um anyway uh so i'm thinking that okay if we just take the the bulk of people who do in fact recovery recover who are never entered into a medicalized program of recovery, maybe not even into AA, what factors into their recovery? In all likelihood, it's family pressures, church pressures. It's 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 communities of pressure.
2: Yes.
1: Um, and so if we tried to quantify those numbers, I'm quite sure that even setting aside formal attendance at AA, it probably is church and communal expectations and pressures that are the explanation for most folks' recovery. Um, but there is also a literature I'd have to track down, but there, there are studies that, that try to quantify this and do suggest that AA, even if we try to quantify things that AA is the most successful for 12-step recovery programs are the most successful, but it's highly contested and it's so incredibly hard to yeah. even know how to, to do the empirical work that would be necessary to, to validate it. So yeah, I, I'm inclined to think it's true. Um, but, uh, you'd be hard pressed to prove it.
2: (laughs) That's my, that's my problem. Yeah. And of course, in the, the, in Heyman's analysis, which you've you've referred to, I mean, he also tells a lot of stories about guys who just say, okay, that's it. And, and they they do it and they mean it. And it is, um, so there, that happens too
1: it does although you would never know it by the way people talk about addiction it does happen it's a taboo topic
0: in the recovery world right oh really
1: yeah
0: oh yeah the idea that people walk away from heroin addiction uh you know immediately the recovery community goes well they weren't really addicts they were just (laughs) they're lying they didn't tell you that they're presently addicted to marijuana You know, there's always got to be some explanation. There's no room for the anomalous. Um, Of late, I've been using, you know, another thing that really gets me is, you can kind of hear it in your your recent comments, both of you, is that we're not making a very clear distinction between recovery and sobriety. And the problem with this is, you know, sobriety can be a very quantitative thing. X percentage of people are sober three years after treatment so on and so forth. But there are many people who achieve sobriety, but are far from flourishing. Yeah. So many of them wind up in what you would call, well, what's called process addictions. The, the And this is provisional, but the definition of recovery that I've been using lately is uh, recovery involves the identification and resolution of the factors that gave rise to the addiction to begin with. Um, And that, of course, implies, you know, if it's trauma, if it's marriage, if it's um, biological pain, if it's, you know, these, it it, it sets in motion that there are things that have to be addressed beyond putting down a vodka bottle. Oh, yeah. And I don't, but you see, even in the academic world or in the clinical world, you will never meet, or you will rarely meet, an academic or a clinician that makes a distinction between sobriety and recovery.
2: Well, that's amazing to me. That it's, I mean, it's, it's so obvious. So as you as you put it, it is so obviously true that that just to leave a person white knuckling and suffering is <laughs> that's not that's not much. No, it's not. It's hardly success. Yeah. yeah.
0: Gentlemen, I don't want to keep you too long, um, but I did notice that Kent seemed to get something from the book show.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, uh, you know, uh, Bruce, I was, I was, I have a big long footnote in a somewhat recent article that I wrote where I try to wade through the social scientific data on whether or not AA works and how it compares to alternatives. So I, I'll just send it to you.
2: Yes, please. Yeah.
1: I'll
2: just send it to you. I want that because um, I think it's true, but but as you say, it's 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 so slippery. We 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 do, we can't measure these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, but we need to have the conversations.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, gentlemen, this has been a. I hope it was as pleasurable for you as it was for me. Um, I've been looking forward to it, and um, you guys have done fantastic work, and I'm sure that. This will give you even more readers. So.
2: Well, I I loved it. Thank thank you both. I mean, this is this has really been a great great morning for me.
1: Likewise, it was a delight to be with both of you. Thanks for inviting us on, Piers, and great to meet you, Bruce. All right. Well, till we speak again. Yep. So long. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.